Hey Kyle, this is Jesse and Leanne Horton coming to you from the South Pacific. Hey Kyle. We're currently on our little boat. Uh, we've been surfing and fishing our way across this ocean here. Uh, we just left Tahiti at Chopo, Tifupo, uh, as I think it's. Tifupo. Yeah, that's that's how you really say it. I'm learning. Anyway. Um, we're headed to another little surf spot. Can't tell you where it is because it is a secret spot. Um, <laughs> but we just, we've really been enjoying your podcast along the way, man. Thanks for keeping us entertained, Kyle. Um, Jesse and I have been having a great time out here. And one thing we wanted to tell everybody is about all the plastics that we've seen on so many different atolls and islands and places where there are no inhabitants. Um, one beach in particular had the high tide line that was marked by plastic bottle caps. So just wanted to remind everybody to think twice before you reach for that single-use plastic purchase at the store and be aware of what you consume. We love this beautiful planet and want to protect it. So thanks again, Kyle, keeping us entertained and for all your hard work. Hope to see you soon. Bye. You. Thank you for sending that in, Leanne and Jesse. Jesse was a guest on this podcast in episode number 104 with his brother, Ben Horton. Ben is a Nat Geo photographer, and Jesse is an elk hunting guide in Colorado. He lives out there for part of the year. And as you know, he is also a boat captain. And Leanne, his beautiful wife, is a badass in her own right. She is one of the best paddleboarders in the world, uh, and she is one of the co-founders of the Changing Tides Foundation, which works to fight plastic pollution, and I will link to their organization in the show notes below. Thank you to everyone who sends me these little voice memos. I love getting them from you. If you are listening into this podcast from somewhere especially awesome from around the world, or if you're just stuck in traffic and uh, want to record a little message on your phone, you can do that in the voice memos app on your phone and then email it straight from your phone over to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf. Just let me know a little bit about what it looks like, where you are right now, um, and you know some words of wisdom for the audience. Try and keep it under a minute, and I would love to play it at the beginning of the show. Thank you so much to Matthew Hutchinson for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. High five, Matt. Uh, I really appreciate it. This is an ad-free podcast, and it's people like you who keep it that way. Um, seriously, um, matters a huge amount. So whatever you can donate, whether it's a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, um, it helps keep this thing coming at you every single week. My guest today is with Jamita Samara. Jamita is a writer, producer, stunt double. She was the Bond girl in 007's Spectra. She stunt doubled in Game of Thrones, Fast and Furious 6. Uh, she is also an archer, um, surfer, uh, synchronized swimmer. She's one of those people who just beca became more and more interesting the more I got to know her. And we ended up hanging out for the rest of the day after the podcast. And I kept learning all of the stuff about her and, and was just like, fuck, why didn't I ask you about this? Fuck, why didn't I ask you about this? Damn it. Okay. So uh, we had a great com conversation. Uh, really happy with it. But someone who I want to get back on the podcast, she was also taking off to go to the border of Syria to work on her 
project uh, My Name is Human, which she is the founder of, which is a social enterprise working globally with displaced people to provide education and creative solutions for refugees, the homeless, and extremely impoverished. Um, And she's 25 years old, so... I get the sense that she uh, is already living and is going to live an extraordinary life. Um, Check her out on Instagram. I will also link to My Name is Human Project in the bio below. And with that, actually, uh, before that, I'm going to Burning Man this year, motherfuckers. Woohoo! And I'm going to be camping at 945 and K. 945 and K with Bounce Camp. So if any of you listening to this podcast are also going to Burning Man... Stop by. I would love to have a beer with you and meet you in person. And with that, for real this time, I bring you Jamita Samara. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. On that again sure <laughs> i do my to-do list on my arm i anywhere on my arm or hand really um just because i see it all the time and it makes me do it and it's quite satisfying to rub one off and only try and rub one off um until you go surfing until i ah uh, yeah you ever go surf in the morning and then the rest of your to-do list doesn't work you're like shit <laughs> well i've done for the day so that's I why surfers can't get surfing. that's why surfers can't get anything done their to-do lists <laughs> always get wiped off on their arm no, I don't tend to do it. I tend to do it just before I sit down and do my work. Because if I write it, I, yeah, if I try and think about what I need to do, <laughs> it's tricky because I go through stages. Sometimes it's really helpful for me to write everything down in the morning. And then sometimes I think so much about what I want to do that I build that list up so big mm. that I never do any of it. So sometimes it's better for me to start my day with a sport like surf or climb or run, then come back, kind of start working anyway and then figure out what I really need to do because if I sit down in the morning I'm like I need to do this by the end of it I'm like I should start house hunting I should also start this (laughs) oh I've always wanted to start this new art piece and so like I end up with a list (laughs) by the end you've started four new non-profits and it's not even 10 a.m yeah I do yeah because if I do my notes digitally and not on paper I don't want Evernote and I'm literally scrolling down a list of to do and I write the date and I'm like this is impossible yeah you ever feel like you get enough done though yeah. Like, like, are you proud of yourself at the end of days or are you one of those people who's just like, I'm never good enough and everyone around you is like, no, you're doing pretty well. And you're like, no, I yeah. made a mistake here and there. Yeah, it's, I find that that's so common with uh, highly motivated people. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty, I was really hard on myself, but I'm easier now. I make sure I get a certain amount of things done throughout like different elements. So I have to do something physical, then I'm happy. Then I have to do something that I learn something for the day. And then I have to also put something out that's good, whether it's making someone else happy or doing something for someone else. Could also involve something like doing my projects because that is for other people. And then I have to get a certain element of work done. Right. So you're tuned in to what makes you happy. That's important. Yeah, I've structured it out like that. And as long as I hit an element of all of those things, I'm good. Um, What I'm really bad at at the moment is communication with people day to day. I've never to this day managed to sustain having long-term close friends 
because of my lifestyle. Um, so it's been quite tricky and it's something that I could very easily do because I've got great people in my life right now and I'm very conscious that I don't make the effort to communicate enough during the day. But then I just feel like I don't have an... I feel like I'm just doing it to keep them, whereas I would love to just check in and hang out with them when I'm there. I'm very much an in-person person. I'm not like a text about nothing person. Yeah, well, it's harder to go deep or build anything real with people when you're not in the room with them. Well, that's it. And people nowadays are so easy to like... I've been at a dinner before and someone's texted me from the other end of the table and I'm like, what are you doing? Come and sit in front of me and talk to me. Have you ever seen the movie Richie Rich? No. It's this great movie with uh, the child actor Macaulay Culkin and he's like the richest kid in the world but really doesn't have any friends and there's this scene where they're at this long rectangular table and the parents are at one end and he's at the other and the parents call him. <laughs> Richie, will you be joining us for dessert? Amazing. Yeah, no, it's... And that really frustrates me. And people, just people on their phones at tables anyway. But yeah, I'm bad with, with friends and I'll put that out there now. Yeah. It's, um, so I grew up in Santa Cruz and uh, a lot of the friends that I still have to this day I've known since I was 10. And it um, certainly provides a different frequency when <laughs> they've seen you at your worst and you've seen them at their worst and you've seen them grow mm-hmm. in... Uh, a kind of scope that you don't get in a lot of big cities. So we're recording this here in LA and a lot of the people who I am now friends with in LA, I've only known for a couple years. So you get this snapshot of who they present themselves to be, but it mm-hmm. takes a couple years before you really get to know people's tendencies that they don't want to show you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I guess it's kind of like dating someone you're dating and then you end up living with them and you see all the ups and downs and or the other sides of them too. Um, yeah, but that's my trouble. I'm never in one place long enough to stay close to people. And it's hard. It's lonely. Yeah. It's a lonely lifestyle. Yeah, it is. I mean, you though are very open. At least I haven't known you very long, but you're very willing to just be like, hey, this is me mm-hmm. doing my best, which does allow uh, for... It just it just uh, wastes less time. It wastes less time, but there's a superficial closeness I feel with people because I'll immediately feel close with everyone and they'll feel close to me back because I'm being very open and I try and make people feel comfortable enough to be open back with me. But then it's not... I don't know if it's a time thing or if it's just because it's started so deep. We don't... like it, Unless the time goes on, it's very hard to progress with that. Right. I feel like it's also people especially in this side of the world I've lived on and off in LA for three years or so when I first moved out here I thought I had loads of friends because that's how you feel when you come to LA you're like everyone's awesome (laughs) everyone's got such high energy but then I I love you bro I love you I've known you for two weeks but I love you best friends forever but then you as soon as they realize you're not useful to them they'll cut you off and that was something I I've sifted through my three years of crap with people in LA of just being like oh she's cool like she does all these things how can we use her oh we can't okay and then I stopped getting I stopped hearing from them and it's I mean I'm just as bad as everyone else at the communication thing but I'm not doing it because I don't find them useful I'm doing it because I'm just doing my own thing and I don't have anything necessarily to say to that person that day but it's not that I don't love and care for that person sure um, yeah, the, the, I know. I know exactly what you mean because really, it's difficult to have to make time for more than like five friends. Like having like five real friends in yeah. your life, and like people who you're showing up for and and 
communicating with consistently, it takes up a, a good amount of life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the friends that I have are they're into the same same kinds of things as me. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm trying to learn a skill, like I find that I have a bunch of bow hunter friends now because I'm trying to get better at bow hunting. And it's like I don't I feel like kind of an asshole sometimes, but at the same time like I'm trying to get good at things. Yeah. And they're trying to get good at things and it's like okay, let's hang out. I think it's different when it's a common interest and it's a hobby and something you share as a passion, but when it's a work thing and a networky thing which I find LA is very much like when right. people know that I have a friend that could be useful to them, they'll use me as the middleman. And that's very <laughs> different to being like let's hang out and bow hunt and get better together. It's like a oh, you can be useful to me because you know this person. Oh, uh, you can smell that shit from a mile yeah, away now too. Yeah, I yeah, I have a good filter for that now. Well, you also hang out with so many different different kinds of people you've lived with homeless people you are on your way to the border of syria to spend time (laughs) with refugees those are uh about the most unpretentious people you'll meet in the entire world so your range of human experience is really wide so you're more tuned in to motivations of people yeah i was actually having this conversation this morning about how much i've always wanted to figure out how i can showcase my life from being such a large contrast because I'll go from living with friends in Malibu on this amazing house and this farm and it goes down to the beach and this is amazing just amazing house and then I'll go from that literally two days later fly to the Turkey Syria border or fly into a, a refugee camp and it's my lifestyle is I'm very happy with that I, I appreciate both sides of it very much um, but it's it's difficult mentally to to change that quickly and to figure out really who I am and where I am because I have a lifestyle that's like if I want to go and fly privately to an island I have friends I can go and do that with it's not my own money so in my head I have this lifestyle that's not really mine but then I'm kind of in the middle kind of giving my all not not earning any money giving my all and energy out to everyone but having both ends of the lifestyle. So living homelessly and living this rich and famous lifestyle. Well, you, I can tell already, you came into this life wanting to experience a lot. (laughs) I can check that off. I've made it further than I thought I would. Really? Yeah. I thought 20 was good. 20 was a good good age to get to. 21, I was like, huh. You thought you were going to die before then? Pretty much. Really? (laughs) Yeah, and 21, I was like, all right, we're still going. This is good. 23 I was like hmm something's fishy I've done I've cheated death at this point (laughs) now I'm 25 I'm like all right what's going on like there's something lurking around the corner last year you're like I gotta go to Syria (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was like I'm gonna end my 25th year in Syria and Turkey come at me life yeah so what uh what's drawing you to this project right now um to the refugee project yeah so I I'll give a bit of background on the refugee stuff so my interest for that came within human behavior and how other humans react with other humans, basically. And the fact that people have enough power to drive other people out of their own country. Um, so that was my initial fascination with it. And I was doing a lot of reading about it. Um, I still consider myself, even though I'm in it and I'm living there, to have very little understanding about what's really going on. Um, and things change so quickly all the time. But yeah, my initial interest in it was was reading a lot about it. And then I started writing quite a lot about other people's stories and just trying to figure it out. I basically would read news articles, whether they're about specific people or groups of people. And then I would try and rewrite that in a a way that I would understand it. 
And then I figured out that maybe I'm not the only person that doesn't understand how the news is portraying these stories because it's full of... You would read stories and then rewrite them to try and understand them yourselves. Yeah, Understand them yourself. Yeah, and that's something I've been trying to work on as well as a side thought here, but um, within global health. So I am as far from a doctor as you can get, as uneducated as you can get, but... I have a lot of now I have a lot of experience within global health because I've been in the field working with patients for malaria and tuberculosis and Ebola and and now I have an understanding of how to translate something from what a doctor is saying to the everyday person like myself or anyone else that doesn't understand their medical lingo but under, would understand it if it was written in a different way. And so I'm trying to bridge gaps at the moment. I don't know if I want to call it millennial or not, but bridge the gap between either political or medical language and millennial language because a lot of people are very quick to share things and to think that they're backing something, but they don't have a lot of understanding behind it. And that was something I was very guilty of. I would be like, oh, that that looks terrible. Of course, they're killing all the dogs in China for a meat festival. Yeah. And like, it's very easy to to be on one side with it. Oh, yeah. A little bit of knowledge can be a very dangerous thing because you're only looking at the first order effects of things and you're not looking at the second and third order effects um, upstream. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah, I see it still now. People are like, they'll share something that they feel very passionate about and it's all very well and it, it... I just feel like not enough people talk about it after that. Like, (coughs) you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. (coughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's... Yeah. Well, I think that uh, the value of going to these spaces and doing a kind of immersive journalism is that you bring it into vivid view for people. And Mm -hmm. it's not just... uh, It's not facts. Facts don't change people. Emotion and and stories change people's viewpoints on things. Yeah. And talking of the whole immersive journalism thing, I'm going to go into just throwing myself into things because I don't know if it's been from... It's a combination of being incredibly lucky to have been born in the UK and to not have restrictions and to have a passport that allows me to go to a lot of places. And whether it's just been a privileged thing because of race or whatever it is, um, that combined with my lifestyle growing up of not having really any restrictions as to where I can go and what I can do has just been like, well, I want to go and help this person, so I'm just going to go and do it. And a lot of people want to help, but they don't know how, and they feel like, oh, I have to be part of an organization, and I have to do this, and I have to quit my job, and I have to go and do this. It's like, well, not really. The way I got into the homeless project after I came out of being homeless was literally just by me walking around the streets. I dedicated two days a week, and I didn't have to do it all day every day. I could have done it half days. And I went around just speaking to homeless people. I wouldn't talk to them about them being homeless. I was just trying to have a normal conversation about what they're into and what they want to be doing and and figure out their passions and interests. And if this we is had in any, LA. This is in London, actually. Um, and if we had any common um, interests, and most of the time we did, because a lot of them are very creative and they either want to, they love writing or painting or they did love doing sports. And I found actually quite a large climbing community in London of all places and walked around and found a couple of like youngish homeless guys and would just speak to them like cool do you want to go climbing and they'd be like what do you mean because half the time and this is something I experienced you don't have the energy you don't have motivation to go and do anything and nor is it an opportunity whilst you're on the streets to go to a climbing wall like that's a privileged thing to do um but to be told that oh we can go and climb now let's just go and do it and just to hang out and give them that very short element of 
feeling human again and not having to think about being homeless and just being treated as a normal human being was something that became quite addictive for me to give to people. So as soon as I did it, I didn't know if it was going to work. I thought this is horrible. And my fear was giving them back to the streets, as it were. Like after we're done, I then go back to my house, but then they don't. And that was something I still struggle with now. But to give them even a short break in the day of just feeling like a normal human being, even if that then influences them to make better decisions and try and get their life back on track, in my head was like, this is something I want to start and grow and see where this can go. And now I've built it into a whole bigger project. But that was how I started. It was just by going on the streets and just doing it. That wasn't part of an organization. It wasn't part of anything else. It was just like, I feel, I also have a naive sense of security about myself and um, feeling safer in situations than I probably should. But I figured that I'm in London, we're walking or taking an uber so I'm always around people it's not like I'm putting them in the back of my car and driving them somewhere and like I've always felt pretty safe I don't think I've put myself in like a stupid situation um and I'm going to a public climbing wall it's not like I'm going to a rock in the middle of nowhere so I've always felt quite safe because that's always people's main concern is like don't you feel endangered I'm not really as people so how would you you'd approach a homeless guy uh-huh say hey I would just start a conversation. Usually I would start with food because I would, um, a lot of them are sitting outside cafes and places they can get food as well. And a lot of them don't want to chat. They just want to sit there and they think that the way they're going to get out of this or survive is just by people quickly just passing by and giving them money. But that's what they're used to. Um, So when you just sit down and just talk to them for a while and just try and get a bit of understanding about who they are, they really open up. And What kind of questions would you ask them? Um, I would avoid questions like, how are you here? And how are you going to get out of the situation? Because I've worked with people before that have done this. And you can see it automatically makes them feel like they've done something wrong. And like, it's their fault. And that's the last thing I want to be doing. I would just literally ask them like, Oh, what's what's your favorite thing to do? Or like, what was your favorite thing to do? And just try and figure out something that they're interested in. Um, I would ask them if they like being in nature and just but questions just to try and get an understanding as to where I could take them as well um because I had a dream of uh, of taking not just one person out but trying to take more people out and going and doing bigger scale projects out of the city because I think cities are poisonous for people it's they feel like it's good for them because it's a place where they can get money but I feel like mentally it's a good place to be out of the city have you ever heard Louis C.K.'s bit about taking uh, his cousin who is from rural America uh, to New York City and he gets off the subway with his cousin and his cousin looks down and he sees this homeless guy who's like in his own vomit and shit and he's like brilliant bad shape and the cousin walks in and he's like, Yo, sir, are you okay? Oh my God, like, do you need help? And then Lucy goes like, no, no, come with me, come with me. Right? Wow. This, we, we get trained out of empathy in big cities. Yeah. And I think that the reason why more people don't engage with homeless people and don't look them in the eye is because it's painful. Mm-hmm. It's painful as a human to see someone who doesn't have their basic needs met when you yeah. do and and you are focused on getting ahead this individual lifestyle all for myself and nothing for anyone else is painful so yeah. we build up barriers mm-hmm. to that um and i think that if more people knew um how to start those kinds of conversations in ways that didn't feel patronizing or um 
or in non-genuine, mm -hmm. um, they would do it. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking about the specifics okay. of how you actually engage with people. Yeah, I would try and, because if you start off too interviewy with them, they feel like you're part of some crazy big organization and they're like, they think you have a hidden agenda. The whole thing is trying to keep it quite simple and even talking about yourself to them so they get a bit of understanding about who you are. Um, or just like, if they, a lot of them have books, so you can talk about books. You kind of just assess the situation as you arrive. If they have a dog, talk about the dog, whatever it is. You just kind of try to make them feel a bit more. Yeah. Will you take them surfing too? Yes, yeah, so this is something I really want to do because London is not yeah. a place that can very easily, it's like a five hour drive. Um, but my idea with the project is to find spaces outside of cities that I can take them um, like a small groups to begin with because I don't want this to grow too big too quickly um, because I want to be able to see it grow naturally and not go off the rails because I think there's a lot of space for it to go quite wrong unfortunately but if I keep it small and tidy enough to begin with I feel like it will be uh, I feel like it will only do good and so I want to take them out of the cities into a place of nature where they can learn basically it's a space where they can learn to live sustainably and self-sufficiently they can learn new creative skills that can potentially get them jobs and learn new skills to um, just better themselves yeah. and then also um, outdoor activities yeah is that one of the first ones I hit no so sustainable yeah, living education and outdoor activities basically like the three components that help me and the three components I think would help a lot yeah. of people. Well, I would imagine that being a climber and a surfer, and you said that you're into archery as well, like mm -hmm. getting out in nature and learning uh, these skills give you confidence um, that is transferable into other aspects of your life. Yeah. So if you teach a homeless person that they can climb up a wall they never thought they could, mm -hmm. all of a sudden that instills a sense of confidence in them, and they're like, oh, you know what? Like maybe, maybe I am worthy yeah. of something. Right. Because people treat you the way you expect to be treated. Mm -hmm. And and I would imagine that being homeless, it it would be very easy to be ex like just expect people to treat you poorly because that's what you're seeing all around you. So I, I, I commend you for that. It's awesome. man. But then you also you took it a step further and then you started living with homeless people. Yeah. That's, so that wasn't so much of a it sounds like an experiment. It wasn't technically meant to happen I had earned money doing stuff I didn't want to do but not in that way I'm gonna just rephrase that entirely I'd earned money basically by I started doing writing and journalism and um, documentaries and I was filming and doing all these things around the world basically capturing death and destruction and all the money I'd earned from that I was trying to do good things with and I wasn't seeing anything coming to fruition I was like this sucks and this money is just blood money. I've earned this money off the back of me watching children die. Like, I don't want this money anymore. And so I started to fritter the money away. I was in LA and I started to kind of be very careless with my money. And it's very easy to lose money quickly here. And yeah, I ended yeah, up kind of... Get like four lattes and you can't make rent <laughs> next year or next month. Exactly. <laughs> Shit, where did it go? Head down Should to... Should not have bought that girl a drink. Damn it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, you buy one smoothie with activated <laughs> yeah. almonds and charcoal <laughs> and you're like, damn. Yeah. Why did I get the matcha powder upgrade? And it's called the matcha billionaire yeah. smoothie or yeah. something. Yeah. How I became homeless. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too, in one smoothie. <laughs> too many almond butter smoothies. Air one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I basically frittered away all my money on smoothies. <laughs> and um, 
I didn't want the money. Well, I, you look great. You know, you're home, you're homeless, but a lot healthy. of almond butter smoothies. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Most fit homeless person <laughs> in the world. Uh, yeah, I didn't want the house. I just wanted the smoothie. Yeah. I, um, I didn't choose, I didn't choose the homeless life. It chose me. <laughs> <laughs> and it technically did. And this is an example of me, by the way, making a light out of a subject that shouldn't be made it's light great. of. It's important. Tragedy plus time. <laughs> yeah. But I can, I feel like I have just, I'm allowed to say this, right? It's like the whole, I'm not even going to go there. Um, <laughs> you go know for it. Going with that. Go for it. No. Um, so how do you be, so you were, so I, I lost you're basically blowing lost your money, money on almond butter smoothies. Blowing my money. And then I, I already cut off quite a lot of my friends because a lot, I was, it was the period of time where I'd realized I'd got friendly with people that weren't good people or they were using me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start sifting through this. And so I started being quite aggressive and then I got a bit of a, a cull on and I was like, right, these people aren't good for me. Cut that group. And none of my friends that I've really known throughout my lifetime have ever known each other. I've never had like a group of friends that I've been a part of. It's always been very individual. And so it's been, and they will be very, very, very different people. It's not like I can bring them all together because I feel like there'll be a lot of tension in the group. And so it was like an individual picking off of all these people I knew. And which, as I was struggling, I was reaching out to people and realizing that no one really cared. And that was like, okay, get rid of these people because they're not there and it's not a real friendship. And then I was like, huh, that's pretty much everyone. Okay, so I've started afresh. I was like, okay, I've got no money. I've got no friends. This is a good blank canvas to start on. And I was still doing okay. Was that a journal entry one morning? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> scoring it on the floor in front of me. Um, uh, August I, 23rd, I've got no money. I've got no friends. This is a blank slate. <laughs> How much further can I take this? I, hit, I saw a rock bottom and was like, nah, we got more than that. What's underneath those rocks? And um, I'd just come back from... San Fran and I wasn't even a friend of mine I was hooked up with a I'm gonna say garage you're gonna say garage um so for whoever's listening it's garage or garage <laughs> in Venice actually yeah you're eating a, a tomato in a garage <laughs> yes tomato in a garage um I was hooked up with the space because they knew I had quite a lot of stuff. I had suitcases and surfboards and skateboards and stuff. And they were like, oh, if you need to store stuff at my friend's garage, you can do so. And I was like, oh, sweet. Thank you. Because it will save me track. Like I was couch surfing at the time. So it would save me taking all my stuff around with me. And it was and I found this garage and was like, huh, it's not attached to the house, maybe. And then I ended up going to some event late at night, came back and was like, oh, I've actually got nowhere to stay because I went through the entire evening not really thinking about it and then it got to like 11 o'clock at night I thought huh yeah I've got nowhere to stay tonight and I don't really want to just tell any random person at this event that I've got nowhere to stay nor do I have the funds or need at this stage for one night to go and get a hotel so I was like oh okay I'll just go back and get my stuff and see see what happens and I go back and I don't know why, maybe it was the street lighting that lit it up quite nicely. I opened the garage door and my suitcase was open in the middle. And I was like, it kind of looks quite comfy. I'll just sit there for a minute and decide where I'm going to sleep. And I sat on top of my suitcase, which is like a double-sided fold-out thing. And I sat there and I was like, huh, all my clothes are in this. This is quite comfy. <laughs> and so I just like led on my back and was going through places. My phone was slowly dying because I had no electricity. And I was like, huh. Maybe I'll just stay here tonight and find somewhere tomorrow. I'll sort my life out tomorrow. And this happened 
five nights in a row I did exactly the same thing went about my day because I had plans um, would charge my phone in the gym had a shower I was functioning relatively well you were literally living out of your suitcase literally it was my bed and you know what I did <laughs> I used my skateboards as as a um, something to stop me rolling out so I would use the wheels against the wall and then against my it, it was a good setup okay in the of this garage then I realized I was about three days in I was like struggling to breathe because I'm on the floor and it's like that wet dust mm, and yeah. I could hear little <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it was also i looked over and there was like an oil leak from the motorbike that was in there it was just like it wasn't a woke, woke up you have like motor oil in your hair <laughs> this is what i've become and it happened very quickly i went for the first night i went from some like i was on the red carpet at 7 p.m went through the event came back and was like oh, i've got nowhere to stay so i went from red carpet to suitcase sleeping and then yeah found myself quite sick a few days in and didn't really think to get my stuff together at that point I was still showering and I had all my stuff day-to-day things to do and then those things started dying out I'd, I'd done my meetings for the week and then I didn't put anything else in place because I was like I'm not really in a position to work or function right now and then yeah then I kind of left the garage the garage sucked though because I I thought I got locked in it one night because it was this tilting door mechanism thing that I was always quite scared because it didn't have a handle on the inside. So I'd always, I rigged up this rope to make sure that I could pull it if I needed to. And that wasn't particularly safe because the garage was open all night, which isn't, at the time, that was less safe. So then you moved out of the garage and slept in other areas all around LA? Yeah, so that was actually down the road from where we are sitting right now. Um, And then I was like, oh, I'll just take my stuff out. Did Um, you have a car? No. No car. Otherwise, I would have slept in the car. Suitcase, that would have been surfboard, great. skateboard. Yeah. And so I left the, skate, uh, the surfboard in in the garage. And like I was meant to, just leave my stuff there, not sleep in the garage. And I took my suitcase down and, and ended up walking down the street and was like, huh. And this was like 4 or 5 p.m. I was like, oh, this is kind of sad. And I realized I really had no money. My car, Not only did I have no money, my card was bouncing. So I was like, hmm. Now we're hitting something a bit stickier. I've my phone is also dead. What's under those rocks? Yeah, hey rocks. What have you got? <laughs> what have you got for me? Is it soft? And uh, yeah, carried on walking through Venice. Found myself sleeping um, under the bridge in South Venice parking lot for one night, and was like, right, I'll figure. And it was always it's like a very Spanish thing. Mañana por la mañana is like tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow. Don't worry. And I don't know why I reserved, referred to myself as a we then. <laughs> don't worry, we've got there this were tomorrow. There were many, <laughs> many selves at that moment <laughs> yeah. in time. Yes, there yeah, was. What, what did the conversation sound like in your mind at that time? It was, you, I mean, you told me you, you have family around the world. Um, you had other options. I So this is the thing. It was... <sighs> It was it was choice, but it wasn't choice. Like if I really wanted to, I could have gone and stayed on someone's couch. Like that's, I don't feel like that would have been an issue. But it was the mental thing of, no, don't just get out of the, the easy way. Stick through it. Get yourself out of the situation. Don't rely on crappy friends. And so I wanted to stick it through, and it was it was quite a stubborn thing to do. I also have so my family don't have very much money at all. It's not like I could be like, yo, can you buy me a flight home? Um, they're not really in a position to do that. So. I didn't want to put them in a situation they didn't really know where like what was happening with me either so I kept quite quiet with my family cut off all my friends and was too stubborn to 
going to sleep on someone's couch. So, yeah, my mental conversations were, I felt fine day to day and it was, for the early part of it, I felt relatively okay. I was like, oh, it's okay. Like this, this will be over soon. And for some reason, I've always had this false sense of security that whatever I'm doing, that there's always an end to something, whether it's good or bad, something, everyone will come to an end. <laughs> Doom on me. And I figured it, it won't last for that long, surely. I'm a week in. I've got a bit of a, a cold and cough from this garage. And then I'm now, now I'm sleeping under a bridge. I'm like, this is better or worse for me here. I don't know. Um, Luckily, there was never really a time I felt that unsafe with the people around me. I didn't choose to stay around other people. Um, if I were around them, I would pick up and, and move. Um, the thing that did, was quite bad, this was the time of the, I think it was the Florida storm, whatever it was last year. I'm going to mess up the name. Do you remember? No. Last summer, there was a big storm that hit Florida. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, was it Harvey? Harvey? Marie, Marie I feel like we begin with H okay. whatever it was big storm in Florida someone uh, someone is screaming it in their car at us right now someone <laughs> tuning in from Florida <laughs> <laughs> okay um, and so that that brought not a huge swell to this side yeah I I'd start I got my surfboard out of the garage because I needed to get my stuff out I got my surfboard out and was like quite this is about two weeks in. I was like, okay, I'm going to go and surf, see if I can just paddle out and have a little meditation session out in the water. And it was pretty big. I was the only person out there. It wasn't like nice, big surfing conditions. It was messy, heavy riptides. And I was like, right, I'm just going to paddle out. And I, at that stage when I was paddling out and got washed into this washing machine the first couple of times, I was like, huh, I don't really care that much if I come back in and I've almost like I said that out loud to myself and I was like wow did I really just think that and I sat on that thought for a minute and was like do I care if I go back in or is this it am I am I okay with the idea of dying I thought that has escalated really quickly um and it was this mental kind of release of am I doing I had all the thoughts am I doing any good for anyone I don't have anyone it was all the depressing thoughts that ran through your brain and I had them pretty much all at once and I, so I did, I had this full release of, I don't care whether I live or die right now. I'm just going to see what happens. Um, obviously I survived and everything was fine. I had a few weird out of body experiences out there, but it was, uh, probably one of the most insightful things that, and, um, that I learned the most about myself was by having that release of not caring whether I'm living or dying. Um, I learned a lot about myself and then I Is it not caring or being at peace with death? I, I think probably at peace. Because you certainly have a fire to you, <laughs> to you and like you are driven to accomplish some shit. Yeah. But is it maybe that you felt like you confronted that side of you in a way that you never had before? Possibly. And I think I also even subconsciously evaluated all the things I had done and was like, Oh, I feel like I've done a lot. Not that I've, I, w I always knew I could do more, but I felt at peace with what I had done and also felt like what I was currently doing wasn't any good anyway. So I felt quite at peace. Um, so I learned quite a lot about myself within that one. And then the experience of being on the streets, especially because I, I didn't try and look scruffy and I didn't try and look good. I just kind of like, didn't really care. I just left myself to look however I was. But unfortunately, being a white blonde girl, I just looked like a 
dirty surfer. I didn't look homeless really ever. <laughs> and I, my, my clothes didn't have the time to really roughen up. And I had my suitcase, so I had cleanish clothes with me. So I never looked that hard done by. So it was, I, I didn't, I also didn't want to go down to the begging route either of begging for food and money. I was just like, I'm just going to go and find food. I'm going to go find food and scraps of food. And Where would you find food? Get by out the back of restaurants and cafes and yeah. Um, I'd also, I had no shame at this stage either. I started off kind of, you have a battle with yourself about like, I'm not going to ask anyone for anything. No. And then, then hunger hits you. And you know how you are when you're hungry. You, you won't ask anyone for food when you're yeah. hungry. If you're in the car and someone's eating, you're like, I'll have some of that. Um, well that kind of hits you. And if people, there's a lot of open air dining in LA and I was like, look, these people are done. I would pick up people's leftovers from tables and skate on by. I was like the skate by pick up food. At what point did you let your parents know what you're doing? Uh, and how old were you at the time? This is 24. This is last year. Last year. Yeah. And they didn't know anything until I got back. And even then, they don't know the depth. So if you're hearing this, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're a close-ish family. We're close in the sense that we don't really argue. Nothing's ever really gone wrong. It's a very, like, neutral relationship. But we also don't have the depth so I think it's a way of my, especially my mother trying to cope with me and also my brother who does crazy things, but a way of her coping with her children doing wild, crazy things. And she's used to not hearing from us for a while. So she, I don't think she was too worried at the time. And by the time I was back, because I was back, I think she was like, oh, whatever, it's fine. And I've been in some sticky situations before with stunts or with um, going to refugee camps and stuff like, and as long as I come back and can live to tell another tale she doesn't seem to mind so much so it's not really been a conversation we've gone too heavily into yet was it always a part of your personality to explore to this level or is that something that that shifted or or sped up at a certain point no I've always been really curious out of the womb yeah just even even from the womb from the womb from the womb I was like what's punching yeah let me get out of here (laughs) I want to explore. <laughs> yeah. No, I've always been very, very curious. And friends not your own age, I would imagine. No, always much older. Always much older. I'd say until I was probably maybe even 18, my friends were probably twice my age, which is, I don't know. Age doesn't really mean anything to me. Age is just a number, man. But it is. You've really got to live your life to earn that age. Because mm. <laughs> you can be 55 and not have seen a bad day in your life yeah well, did you uh, spend a lot of time with homeless people uh while you were on the streets here surprisingly not actually i tried to avoid because i was i felt like i was in a vulnerable position because i was and at that time i didn't really want to it was more the experience of how the general public were reacting with me that was interesting more so than spending time with homeless i did what was interesting about it um when people do give you food before so there's a thing when you ask for food and you get food that's rewarding you get your food you, you've eaten for the day you're good but when someone gives you food before you've eat, before you've asked for it you realize that you look like you're in a bad situation enough for someone to sympathize enough to give you food and it's an incredibly degrading feeling being given something like that or if someone just like tosses money down at the floor to you um, without making the eye contact the eye contact thing is a big thing and I guess it's a shame it's a guilt that people have they'll walk past and 
you're an inconvenience to them for one because you're on the street and that's where they want to push their brand new baby stroller or ride their one wheel past you and you're in the way and they can't get into their Starbucks because you're laying in the doorway because it's the only shelter you've got from the wind so it's yeah do you run into any friends in LA while you were homeless yeah I have actually on this trip as well there's a dog park because I love love animals especially dogs and there was a dog park I used to go to because I used to sit by the fence and this is a place where I didn't look that homeless because a lot of people would just go and hang out there and I was of an age and yeah it's strange to think about um which places in the open are acceptable to lay down i'd you can lay down on the beach you can lay down in a park you can't lay down on a sidewalk or in a restaurant yeah no in a restaurant's a (laughs) no-no a restaurant's a no-no so you're at a park do a guidebook for this yeah yeah (laughs) No, don't. Not promoting homelessness here. Um, No, no. (laughs) No, it's like, uh, well, they have the traveling through Europe on $5 a day kind of guidebooks. Yeah, I mean, you can get by for free here. Yeah. In LA, even. Um, But yeah, there's acceptable places to live. With AI, too, it's going to displace so many people. Uh, There's going to be so much homelessness. You could really make that be a bestseller. (laughs) Except I don't know if the people who are buying it would have any money. I make it a free Catch 22. Yeah. Yeah. so you're in a park. So yeah, the dog park was cool because I could just sit there and look at the dogs and occasionally go in and pretend. So if there was, this is the thing I worked out, especially on a Saturday, if there were enough dogs in the park, I could at least at all, at all times pretend that at least one of them is mine. So I didn't look out of place in there. So I'd fuss one dog and then that person would leave and then I would go to another dog. And so someone would always think I had a dog in there and I would just go and hang out with the dogs. Eye contact seems like it has been a big theme throughout your life. I was just thinking about you trying to make eye contact with these people up at Malibu mansions or with homeless people offering to take them climbing or now with Syrian refugees. It's, uh, I think it's like you were saying, I think it is a female, probably a female thing. Cause a lot of females are trying to avoid eye contact and I go straight in hard on both eyes. Cause a lot of people, this is something else I noticed. Some people only hone on on one eye and they almost zone out the fact that they're looking at someone's face and they think that is considered as eye contact. Eye contact is you're reading everything at all times. And I do this on the tube in London. Not my favorite place to be, but I... Um, What's the tube? The tube is the underground. Okay, yeah, station. subway. Yeah, it's just yeah. lots of people in one space. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no one looks at each other. And if you do, they're like, hmm, do I know this person? Or what do they want? And it's it's always a transaction. It's a it's an emotional transaction at all times. It's not just like a, hey, we can just look at each other and say hi, or we can just look at each other and be curious about each other's face. It's not. It's like a, what do you want? What do I want? Hmm. Yeah, I, that's why I don't do podcasts uh, over Skype. Oh, good. It's just like the, you don't get this no. feeling. Um, yeah, and that's that's such a big one to think about, especially with homeless people. I've told this story freaking million times. I'm not podcast but uh my mom used to run uh, a nonprofit called above the line uh it was f- the first homeless teen center in santa cruz oh. where homeless teens could go and um because one day she was walking down the street and we have this big town clock in santa cruz and she was talking to this homeless kid um who was about 14 and he, he walked up to her and he said excuse me miss do you know if there's anywhere um for homeless teens to go um, to, to get a night's sleep and, and she realized that there wasn't. So she spent the next 10 years of her life, um, building this homeless teen center. And, uh, she said the strangest thing that they would tell her is that 
people would go days without ever looking them in the eye. Mm. It is, a, it is a common thing. The funny thing is I told this story on another podcast and my friend Amy texted me and she's like, hey, so um, my boyfriend Dave tried that eye contact thing with homeless people. And Dave is uh, he's a very centered individual and also makes really intense eye contact. And she's like, yeah, the homeless guy tried to fight him. Wow. Yeah, there's a way of doing it. I think there's a knack of um, being quite soft with the eye contact and not making it like you're judging them because eye contact can be perceived as many different things um whether it's a sexual thing whether it's a jealousy thing whether it's a judgmental thing there's someone's always assuming you're thinking something usually negative if you're looking them directly in the eyes and you don't know them um which is mind-boggling to me because it's something i've just always done i do it with animals and i don't know why because a lot of people think dogs have a weird thing for me I think it's a thing with dogs too because they'll be like oh my dog doesn't usually like anyone and I'll just be sat there staring their dog in the face and we'll just be staring at each other and I think it works across all species yeah do you think about uh your purpose my purpose yeah do you like are you you're you're so on track like you you're experiencing so (laughs) much well I mean you're you are uh you're certainly headed in a direction in a hurry and you're consuming a lot to try and learn a lot, as much as you can about this world and this life mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. I just feel like things are moving at a very fast pace and in order, I just don't want to miss anything. And it's not that I don't want to miss any opportunity. And I wouldn't say I'm in a hurry so much. Um, a lot of people think I'm running away from something. I feel like I'm definitely running towards something, not trying to escape. I've never, well, apart from elements of my life such as the homeless period is seen as an escapism but I don't feel like I'm trying to escape the whole time I feel like I'm definitely driving towards something um and my purpose has never been really anything to do with myself um I would say I've always wanted to do something for other people yeah when do you feel like you're being the most useful um when I'm finding a solution to help more than one person. This is another reason I stopped doing media around um, humanitarian, animal, and environmental causes. Not because I didn't think it was doing good, I just didn't think it was doing enough. Um, I felt like I could be doing more on the ground. And maybe that's because of my lack of faith within my own ability to produce a film well enough to do something, or whether it was because... I felt like, and some things don't need to be told. There's certain stories in the world that just don't need to be told to do good things for it. So, mm. so I've worked now recently, earlier this year in Southeast Asia, I was working in clinics on the border of Thailand and Myanmar. And if I were to film that and do a documentary that kind of ex- explains everything that's going on there, those clinics would be shut down. Mm. So that's not doing any good. I'm now just filming it for the sake of filming something. And it's not, progressive right um yeah and i think that there is a a, you know we many times chase our successes and run away from our failures and in the age of social media and documenting everything it can feel really good to 
tell everyone about the good work that you're doing because you get all these pats on the back and then all of a sudden you're kind of putting the cart before the horse and you're thinking about how the story will play Mm -hmm. rather than thinking about how you can be most effective and you start thinking like a politician and as a result nothing really gets done absolutely we were having this conversation about um, environmental nonprofits that put so much into marketing and talk Mm -hmm. But they don't really, um, they don't really have the boots on the ground. Yeah, and it's, like you were saying, um, people are very quick to want to look heroic, and so if they go to a refugee camp, they're gonna take seven thousand selfies of themselves with children from the camp around the camp, filming everything they can to prove that they've been there. And whether it is that whole thing that they now have a library of things they can post forever and look like Superman, but it's not doing any good. There's a lot of stories. Well, because people also aren't understanding the issue any better. They're just understanding that you are a part of it and you're doing good work. And they'll say, oh, I'm so happy you're doing such good work. And you're like, oh, really? Which kind of work? I can't really recall, but I saw you with a a black kid who looked malnourished. So keep it up. You must be doing good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a a lot of people that are very, especially now, it's become easier. Before, like I'd say five years ago, it was unheard of for someone... I say unqualified to go to a refugee camp. Now it's much more like if you have an Instagram account, yeah, you can go to a a refugee camp. Like the access that you're allowed now because you're believed to be doing good is insane, even though they're not doing good. Um, And there's a lot of social media influences that are drawing attention negatively to places. There was a school that was built in Bangladesh and they drew they drew so much attention to it that it ended up causing a lot of conflict in the site. And they they filmed their stuff. They looked very heroic and did all their things. And like, oh look, we're the new gods of the camp. Look what we've done for you. And then they leave. They go back and live their life and end up going. They do vines and YouTube's and whatever it is. And then, meanwhile, this camp has got this brand new, very overfunded structure in the middle of it. Say it's in the middle of a refugee camp, but they've built this like grand designs of all buildings out of glass and stone and all this and it's just become a new target for the camp it's not doing any good but i feel like social media is a i don't know i'd say it's as bad as it is good i've used it for good in the sense of my homeless project i used it to recruit for the first time as instead of using it to raise awareness which i think is good i wanted to take it that next level and see if i could actually use people from it in a physical sense. So I put a post out about me wanting to do this homeless project and create this global movement about getting people out and living sustainably, outdoor activities and um, creative education. And I put this thing out like, would anyone else be interested? And within two weeks, I'd sifted through hundreds, if not a thousand applicants of people, I see applicants, people responding and got it down to about 350 people around the world that were genuinely dedicated and had a place and a position to do so and to do something about it. And that was, I felt like that was a good movement for me in terms of social media. So how is this project that you're working on now different? The Refugees for Refugees The refugee project. one was... And, and you kind of touched on it, but you didn't really lay out what it is that you're going to be doing over the next few months. So you can you give yeah. that summary? Yeah, yeah. So I was approached, um, I'd say end of last year to help with a school building in Uganda, in southern Uganda, actually. And um, 
I was like, yeah, of course I'd love to help. Like, there's something I've always wanted to do. And at the same time, within the same month, I was asked if I wanted to go and teach um, creative workshops to a school on the Turkey-Syria border in Rahanli. Um, it's a, it's the school's only been up for about a year. And it's a very creative school, like 12 to 18-year-olds that have access to like a wood workshop and um, like laptops and like, quite a lot of facilities, uh, considering where they are. And they were very interested in me coming out and doing, whether it was a stunt workshop or writing workshop or just something creative. It didn't have to be anything that specific. And I was like, yeah, of course. And so then I realized I'm taking on quite a lot of things at the same time. And everyone's always been like, oh, you're doing too many things at once. And I was like, right, what if I could make all of these things into one project and combine everything instead of me doing all these things what about them all becoming the same thing because they all everything I've always done is always tied into them each other and I was like, okay instead of me designing the school why don't I get the other people like the other students to design the school and try and partner refugees from around the world and then I started studying the benefits of how that would look in terms of like okay what will happen if I do lessons on um what's happening in Uganda with Syrian refugees. Will they learn from it? Will it be a positive or negative experience for them? Like, Why did you pick Syria and Uganda? Um, purely because of the two places that I was offered the two projects from. Um, I'd like to scale this up and actually do this globally with other camps and other refugees as well. Um, but this just out of coincidence, this is what I was offered at the time. Right. So and do you think that by... And you said it's... Uh, ages 12 to 18 12 to 18 so the the basic so what does this look like so you bring S- syrian mm. kids over to uganda no 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 <laughs> okay so i'll break it down um so i'm going out to rahanli to teach for two weeks i've designed a two to three week workshop where's rahanli rahanli is on the turkey syria border okay um i'm going out there to teach a workshop um with an eco off-grid construction worker called harrison gardner he's built schools and earthships all over the world and so he's going to come out and help me teach these uh, the Syrian urbanized Syrian refugee students. So they they're out of camps now, and they're going to school um, usually daily. And uh, we're going to go and teach them about how to basically design a school and prototype it out made out of mis- recyclable material. So we'll be taking some materials with us, but we will be using and utilizing what they've got there. Um, so they'll be learning about architecture and design, recycling, and then also be learning about community work and the problems that are happening in, in South Sudan and Uganda. And to be to give a Syrian refugee the opportunity to give back to a child that's in a similar position to themselves or how they were, I think is empowering, educational, and has a lot more benefits than yeah. just learning to survive every day or learning Yeah, it's a, it's a metaphor for uh, taking a homeless person climbing. Really, like right. teaching them something. It, it feels good for you and it feels good for them. Yeah. Right. That's that's the real secret to the life of empathy that you are trying to cultivate is that you live a much richer and happier life mm-hmm. than you do than the, the narcissistic uh, fake friends up on the Malibu Hills do. Yeah. And this is something I've learned along the way is that you don't have to be in a position of privilege to give back. Mm. Um, you don't have to have loads of because this is something that everyone struggles with that they always think someone else will pick up the slack because they don't have the financial means to give hundred. They think it's like hundreds of pounds to charity every month. We don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, um, 
you, know, you you spend a lot of time in Cape Town, and that's a great example. If you walk into a township like Kailiche or something, and the, and you see uh, these soup kitchens. I did a, a short story on this woman named Mickey who runs a soup kitchen in in Kailiche. She she feeds hundreds of kids, and this is the largest township in uh, in Cape Town. And you see the way that the communities interact, and it's much much closer mm. because they rely on each other. So there's a constant giving and taking between the people um, because of that reliance. Many times privileged people give back um, way less because yeah. they're just not connected by necessity. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the highest rates of depression and suicide are among middle-aged, upper middle-class white men. Yeah. So who's really winning? Exactly. But it's very common for people to feel like someone else will do something about it and that's the one of the biggest problems i guess we have with today is that someone always feels like someone else will will be there and it's not the case like when are we going to wake up and actually do something about it ourselves it goes i guess within plastic pollution it goes within everything like oh i'm I'm all right to drink this water bottle because someone else is recycling i'm okay to eat meat today because someone else is vegan like we if everyone had that mentality, we would be in the same situation always. So one of us has to pick up the slack. And I think everyone can do something smaller than they should. Do you, uh, have you always had that mindset? Was there a mm. person who, who inspired you or influenced you to, to take it on? No. Um, with or, is my- it just, or is it just purely through tactile experience that you, you did something as simple as taking a homeless guy climbing mm. and, and saw how easy it was. I'm hyper aware of my actions and how they affect other people. Like if I'm, if I look sad and I realize that's making someone else look sad, that I, I'm aware of that. And so I'm always aware of what I'm putting out there. So I've always wanted to make sure that what I'm putting out is something good. And I guess that does translate, translates into what I'm doing. Now. You're also hyper aware of what you put into your body. I say hyper aware. I am hyper aware of it. It wasn't necessarily a conscious decision. It just happened to be my way of life. So I grew up loving animals, loving them. So I didn't want to put them in my body. And that was a very natural thing as a child for me to be like, I don't feel the need to kill that thing. Because I guess I grew up in a place where I could have alternatives. So I didn't want to eat my friends. And that was just how I grew up. Um, and then you also decided not to drink alcohol. Yeah, alcohol, I grew up... Like, but you told... Yeah. We, we were um, having tea earlier, and you told it to me in such a um, uh, an earnest way. It was just like, yeah, I don't drink alcohol because I found that it made makes me feel worse about myself, which is something that it does for so many people, but to put it in, in terms that simply mm-hmm. is... Um, yeah, I guess uh, earnest is the, is the word that I would use. Yeah, it's also a visual thing. I learned from other people's actions, behavior, whatever it is, always, and always have done. So if I grew up seeing people drinking, this goes along, alcohol, smoking, cigarettes, and coffee, and anything caffeinated, I've always had this kind of negative stigma around because I associated it with sad people. So I, and also fast food. So I would walk past like a McDonald's and see a bunch of very overweight and unhealthy looking people and I'd be like oh I don't want to be like that so I have I'm a very associative brain if I see something I'm like okay well that means that and so that was how I grew up I would make my own decisions based on that so I was like okay this person looks sad in the morning they're there with a newspaper just chugging down coffee and a cigarette they look sad I don't want to have what they're having um 
and the same with alcohol I've only ever I grew up seeing alcohol do bad things to people so it's not something I wanted to get involved with but like I was telling you earlier I had this fascination with alcohol because it's so I think there's such a large culture around it and I noticed this actually Christmas this year um I was in London and walked down Oxford Street which is a big shopping street in London and I was walking down at night and saw all these store windows lit up and saw all these glittery dresses and I was like everything designed on this shop front is all based around alcohol like this dress is made for someone to go and it's a it's called a cocktail dress like how much more obvious do you want it to be and I was like this is insane like everything is around an alcohol-based culture what if it wasn't alcohol-based what if it was weed or something else that you can just wear whatever you want be comfy and have an intelligent conversation with someone and you don't have to dress up in high heels and a glittery dress drink alcohol and not remember what you're doing for the night like I've never seen that as a benefit or as a positive ever yeah Yeah. you found that uh weed makes you feel more it seems like you're drawn to things that make you feel more i want to feel everything i want to feel literally everything i'm feeling and everything everyone around me is feeling i just want to feel it i guess i do run off energy quite yeah have you ever experienced uh experimented with psychedelics uh yes so mushrooms have been in my life for (laughs) like it's a partner of mine oh, it, so oh they are oh, mushrooms, m- mushrooms and I have, have been, been dating uh, for about a year or enough like let's say about 18 months or so oh well they they certainly um y- you know you're, you're making a joke about like you know when we were on the streets like there's multiple selves i think we really do have multiple selves yeah. there's a self that i am when i'm hungover, and that is a different kyle than i am after a good night's rest or a different kyle when i'm um surfing or mm-hmm. podcasting these are all different versions of ourselves um, you know, there's this say, like the saying, like I was bes- beside myself, like beside who, you know, or, <laughs> um, I don't know what got into me. Don't, mm. you know, that we don't, we don't acknowledge that there are multiple selves in us and the people we surround ourselves with, the trips we take, the food and substances that we put in our bodies all contribute to a different self showing up Mm -hmm. that is either closer to or further away from our potential. Mm. Um, And I find that having used mushrooms and and LSD and and ayahuasca um, over the last few years has put me in touch with a self that I didn't... I don't want to say I didn't know it was there because tripping for me feels like um, I'm kind of coming home like to a self of like, oh, hey, I remember you. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, you don't need to be so hard on yourself all the time. Mm. That Those tend to be similar, like the messages that come through. Um, when you say home, I'm curious because this is how I feel with this. Um, do you mean home is in like a sense of, I see it almost as a childlike thing. I, as you know, mushrooms almost allows you to see the world as you're seeing it for the first time through child's eyes. And I see that is my sense of home. My sense of home is not having to see things in such an adult way, in a serious way that I have to day to day to be able to walk down the street without being amazed by everything around me. We're kind of conditioned to, but yeah, for me, that is my sense of home is that feeling of almost childlike feeling. Is that what you mean by this? No. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It, it is, um, you know, Michael Pollan just wrote the book, um, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah. And he puts psychedelics in terms of um, that th- they 
increase um, a sense of entropy in our lives. And then then they help us move further away from ego. Mm-hmm. This sense of um, you know when we are sober and when we are moving through the life our life, going to work and surfing and do and you know, having our podcast, it's like, this is me, this is Kyle, and this is who I am and what I do. And I gave you my little spiel earlier introducing myself. Mm -hmm. And that is a version of myself that is very egocentric. And that's what gets the podcast recorded and the book done. But But psychedelics, I think, can allow for this sense of entropy where the ego diminishes and all of a sudden we're able to, at least for me, I'm able to come home to a place where the Kyle that has come into this life um, is. And it's not, I, I am not merely the accumulation of my personality and accomplishments. And there's something deeper and that that frequency feels like home. And that's a frequency mm-hmm. that I get the feeling came into this world and will leave this world. Um, and I don't tend to th- do too much deep thinking on whether or not, I mean, maybe I do, I, I don't fret too much about where we go when we die and if it's yeah. all over or if I will go somewhere else. But that frequency, that frequency that 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 um, becomes more present on a good psychedelic trip when I'm, I'm doing it in a responsible way, mm-hmm comes into vivid view in a very special a special way that that I can access in other other places um that's what I love about psychedelics I think is that it's not just like a one-off thing that you experience and you're seeing pretty colors and clowns for four hours it's something that you can tap into anytime after you've experienced and it's kind of open I see it as like opening doors it's like unlocking the door and opening it for you and you have access to that room pretty much whenever you need it from that day on um yeah, and and I had an experience. Um, gosh, just just last week, uh, I used ayahuasca in a two night ceremony, and ayahuasca is like for anyone who who hasn't used that or anyone who has, is like fasten your fucking seatbelt when you're going <laughs> in on that journey, and do not take it lightly. Like it is a, psych up for it, like an athletic event, mm-hmm. and um, it can provide really useful insights, and it can also be very painful. Um, but I. Uh, I had this insight, you know, uh, that I found was, was very helpful. Uh, it was a really difficult experience, like vomiting and shitting for eight hours straight for two nights. Was this your first time? No, it was probably my fourth time. Yeah. And, uh, it was just nausea, nausea. Like you couldn't believe in, in a all consuming way. And I had the insight on the second evening um, I have a stepsister, um, older stepsister, who passed away a few years uh, ago from cancer. And she was nauseous for the last year of her life, to the point where she could barely make it through the day. And I had the the insight that if I dedicated my nausea to her, and if I mm. dedicated the nausea to everyone who experiences it on a daily basis, it minimized that experience for me and allowed me to feel more connected. Mm -hmm. So fuck, if that's not a useful insight to take with me for the rest of my life, I don't know what is. Yeah. The ability Uh, to feel other people's, the ability to feel more, which I've always, I've had this conversation with people before. I'm like, I feel like I have 
a strange ability to feel or understand how people are feeling quite well. And a lot of people are very confused as to how that's useful to me. And I've never been able to communicate my reasoning as to why, which is something I should think about more. But I think it's incredibly useful to be able to feel, especially feel someone's energy and to be able to read people in that sense. Did you uh, use psychedelics during your period of homelessness? I did not out of an escapism or to want to enter another realm. It was more in a sense that I knew that mushrooms killed my appetite and I knew I had limited <laughs> access to food. So I was like, right. And I was also very coincidentally given like a backpack. A, a guy friend of mine was, he's, was just about to have a kid and his wife was like, we got to stop it with the mushrooms, stop it with the weed. And was he was giving basically everything away. Gave me a <laughs> I'm hungry. Here's some psychedelics. He gave me a backpack Ooh. of chocolate shrooms. And I was like, all right, thanks. Oh, and this was just before it all dropped. So I was blessed and cursed with that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say, whenever I talk about psychedelics on this podcast, I think that, um, the whole entropy and ego, uh, way of looking at things can be really useful because, I have met people who have used psychedelics irresponsibly, used them too many times, who have shifted too far towards e- entropy mm. for for a long period of time or forever, yeah. right? And those are the people who can't show up on time, can't think clearly, th- can't meet the deadline. So mm. again, ego can be really important too, but managing both of them um, is the dance of life, isn't it? Yeah. Starve the ego, feed the soul. But I think, I think mushrooms, it, this is the thing, like I was saying with the whole thing around alcohol and there being dresses made specifically to drink alcohol in and not one goddamn thing to smoke weed in, <laughs> unless it's tie-dye. Come on, or there are plenty pants. of things to smoke weed in. Yeah, I mean, you can smoke anything, but you don't see it advertised in the storefronts because it's not seen as a social thing. It's seen as a gateway to drugs. And you're like, no. I wish they were in completely separate categories. Alcohol should be in the same category then. As other drugs? As drugs. It should be seen as that. You see big... I mean, I've driven through America a bunch. You see the big... I'm not going to call out specifically which state this is in, but there's billboards everywhere like marijuana is the gateway to heroin. And you're like, it's... But it's just not. No. No, it it, it is not. And all of these drug laws were passed in the 1960s through sweeping leg- legislation... Uh, by people who had no understanding of what the drugs did. That's why yeah. heroin, cocaine, and LSD are all considered Schedule One drugs, and they're all considered not to have any medical benefit and a high uh, potential for abuse. Mm-hmm. LSD, that's not true, right? And yeah. and now we're kind of running into the second coming of psychedelics, where there are researchers at John Hopkins who are doing um, studies on psychedelics like mushrooms that can help mm-hmm. people quit smoking and get yeah. over depression and anxiety. So I do think that we are getting to a more educated place around these substances. And I'm I'm far out there. I, I don't think that any drugs should be illegal because of the um, the effects downstream that they have. For example, the Mexican drug war is a result of us making these drugs like heroin and cocaine illegal. Mm-hmm. So, <sighs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, if you think, think about the, the worst person you've, think about the most drunk person you've ever seen. Think about the worst behavior you've ever seen from a drunk person. Yeah. 
pretty bad. Pretty bad. Right? Think about the worst behavior you've ever seen from someone super high on mushrooms. Yeah. They're like licking a store window or like doing the worm <laughs> on the sidewalk or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's a much more internal behavior than alcohol is a very outward and selfless experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. It's uh it, it's inspires me that you're not drinking alcohol. I'm trying to drink less. And that from that last experience that I had using ayahuasca, I, I had that insight that was like duh, that duh moment of like fuck alcohol makes me feel worse yeah like, totally makes me feel worse about myself I shouldn't be doing this well you know what is uh, uh, there's multiple reasons for this with the whole alcohol thing and it's another reason is that it's just I really don't like being sick like I don't like feeling sick I don't mind being sick I hate feeling sick and the idea of drinking myself into a state that I would feel sick just doesn't make sense to me um and what else was I on that just human behavior around it. Have I? Yeah. A lot of bad decisions are made on alcohol. My brother's a firefighter. He's like, man, if people didn't drink booze, we'd be out of the job. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All those medical calls, late night medical calls, medical calls on homeless for homeless people. It's uh-huh. largely related to alcohol. Yeah. Fucking A. Damn. <laughs> this is a fun podcast. Let's, uh, I'm going to let you go, but where can people get in touch with you? And follow you on your journey to Syria, the border of Syria, Turkey, then lay out this fucking itinerary for me. (laughs) So I am now flying to London for two weeks to work on my lesson plans and finalize the um, project with, I've got a documentary filmmaker coming out with me and also an off-grid construction worker coming out. So that's my small team. It's just us three. Um, So I'm in London for two weeks. First of September, I leave for Turkey. And I'm based on the Turkey-Syria border for two to three weeks, um, teaching the kids. And then I'll be uh, heading to Uganda to start the construction process. And that's not, I mean, that's a very long-term project. It's not just the case of building a school. It's like, I'm then going to source refugee teachers to come and teach. I'm going to retrain them. I'm going to have a, um, it's going to be fully self-sufficient in terms of water and food. I want food security there, medical facilities. So it's going to turn into a full full place full so, deal full deal so it's a uh, quite a long-term project on that one Thanks. but in terms of places you can follow i'm gonna have to spell out my name in a sure do it way you might have to translate the letters for me because i have a cold and also an english accent um so my social media yeah sure instagram thing? probably right instagram all right instagram is at jimita samara it's g-e-m I-T-A-S-A-M-A-R-R-A. They're all M for mother, not N for night. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) It was a blast. Thank you so much. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Lost in the Ebb by the Getaway Dogs. If you are a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I will link to your band page in the show notes. Once again, this is an ad-free podcast. Thank you to everyone who donates. Whatever you can, it really does help. If you can't, don't worry about it. Give the podcast a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Whatever you can do all makes a difference Um, and finally I was recently a guest on the human optimization hour with Kyle Kingsbury so if you want to hear me uh, being interviewed you can go over to the human optimization hour and check that out all right y'all y'all I don't say y'all that much it sounds awkward when I when it comes out of my mouth all right y'all I'll see you next week 
Much love. You're fucking awesome. Keep doing your thing and get in the water if you can. Whatever kind of water you are close to, whether that is a pool, bathtub, lake, river, or ocean, I promise it will make you and your day better. Ta-ta. Watching white our sun and moon.
just run.